Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you this week? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing well. I missed you last week, uh, but you're back now. Got lots to talk about. Our guest this week, we uh, have always gone with fellow Kentuckians as the guests, but this is our first week doing other friends. We have Chuck Cora and John Eisner from the Apod Lacha podcast. They have a really great show. If you don't know about them, you should definitely check them out. They're very fun. Way more fun than us, probably. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, they, they, they have a great show about Appalachia, and we talked to them about kind of Kentucky's role in Appalachia and then Appalachia's role in in Kentucky. Uh, it was a great show. I uh, really enjoyed talking to those guys. I thought it went really well. Yeah, talking to them was really fun. And unfortunately, like, I don't think listeners will get to hear our post-recording conversation about uh, various Appalachian buffets and Tudor Biscuit World, but yeah. it was a good time. Yeah, they talk about a lot about that on their show, so definitely check it out if you want to. They're from West Virginia. Jasmine, John Denver once said, almost heaven, West Virginia, and he was right. It's only next door in Kentucky that that's heaven, so there you go. Uh, before we get to that interview, though, we have lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, I'm going to give a COVID update at the end, but we have a lot to talk about with the General Assembly. Andy Bashir, Governor Andy Bashir, has started vetoing bills i don't think he's finished yet but he has done three straight days of vetoes i'll be talking about that jasmine's going to talk about things that are left undone in the general assembly that they might be able to cram in the last two days here at the end of the session once the veto period is over so without any further ado let's talk about governor Bashir's vetoes all right jasmine I, you know i think Andy Bashir is not done vetoing bills, but he definitely has started the process, and he kicked off his process on Monday. He vetoed five bills and then followed up Tuesday by vetoing three bills, and then today he vetoed two bills. So yeah, the way that this has kind of worked is that uh, all five of the bills that he vetoed on Monday have to do with executive authority. Then the bills on Tuesday were about, like, values, kind of broadly values. And then Wednesday, the bills that he vetoed were about education. So it's it seems like probably the governor is going to be rolling these out by issue. Uh, I think that's kind of the mm-hmm. way he's doing it. Uh, and it's it, kind of nice because he's also signing bills at the same time he's vetoing them. And he's signing the bills around that issue and kind of presenting these bills, the bills that he's actually signing that he thinks are good. And then doing these videos like of appreciation. So, you know, uh, it's a social media ready uh, presentation of the governor's work with a legislative session. Uh, have you had a chance to see any of this since since Monday? I've followed what he signed and vetoed, but I haven't seen like the presentation. Yeah, it's pretty good. He's got like guests and stuff. Uh, he's got lots of people in the education space that spoke today. Um, he had people uh, who did a lot of work in like social services and stuff yesterday. I actually didn't watch Monday, but I think he did. He did the same thing um, in, in talking about like executive authority. So, anyways, um, we'll get into each of these bills that he has vetoed. So on Monday, which was the day that was about executive authority, the bills that he vetoed were SB 228, and that's the bill that gives political parties a role in selecting the replacement United States senators after a vacancy occurred. A lot of people have called this the uh, Mitch McConnell retirement bill because a lot of people think that Mitch McConnell may not serve out his entire term now that Republicans are in the minority. So he vetoed that. Uh, HB 394 is another veto. We actually haven't talked about this bill, but it was passed at the end of the legislative session. It allows the Fish and Wildlife Commission to hire and set the salary for the commissioner instead of the governor. And we talked a little bit about the controversy with the Fish and Wildlife Commission. Governor Bashir has this kind of beef with them over the commissioner who's Rich, Rich Storm. We don't want to get 
too into that, but you can read about it if you want to. Basically, like the commission wants him to be the commissioner, and I think he was put in place by Governor Bevan. Andy Bashir obviously doesn't want this Bevan guy running the Fish and Wildlife Commission, and so only offered him like a one-year contract, uh, and they have been beefing over how much to pay him and how long his contract should be. So that's that story. HB 275, this bill removes the governor from the State Investments Committee and replaces him or her with the state controller. Uh, I don't know. I think it's probably a good idea to include the controller on the Investments Committee since that's the person who like has the money, but it probably makes sense for the governor to be there too. Basically, also, this gives power to the treasurer, uh, the state treasurer who is a Republican, to do a lot in that bill as well. So then also we have HB 518. So the state fair board is make up, made up of several appointees having to do with agriculture throughout the state. You know, they're like the people who farm animals get two people and people who farm crops get two people and horse farmers get people. This bill makes the commissioner of agriculture the person who makes this appointment and it had been the governor. So basically taking power away from the governor and giving it to the commissioner of agriculture who, again, is a Republican. And then the last one for Monday's bills are SB 93. So this bill is very similar to HB 518. It makes the commissioner of agriculture the person who is able to make appointments to the state board of agriculture. Again, taking a power that had been the governor's and giving it to a different uh, executive in the state government. So those were the Monday bills. Jasmine, any yeah, of- definitely a theme there. Yeah. Uh, any any of those any <laughs> a lot of those power stripping. Yeah, and that was a big theme throughout the mo- most of the legislative session. So that's uh, and it was very blatant too. Uh, Jasmine, any any anything you think he shouldn't have vetoed on on Monday? Uh, no. Yeah, me either. I'm I'm all I'm on Team Andy for this for the Monday bills. Okay, on Tuesday, he vetoed three bills, and those are, again, broadly about values. So HB 312, this is the bill that that guts the open records law in Kentucky. We talked quite a bit about this bill, including how the Kentucky Press Association was likely bullied into supporting it. Now the legislature is going to have to pass it again. It has been controversial, but it did pass with a little bit of a margin, so we'll see what happens with HB 312. HB 475, we talked about this bill last week. It bars the state from adopting safety standards, which are more strict than the federal standards. Uh, This is a part of what has been termed like the race to the bottom, basically telling businesses, hey, you know, relocate to Kentucky. We don't care about workers and we don't care if they get hurt and you can get away with it and make more money. It's really crappy and I'm really glad he vetoed it. So that's HB 475. And then the last one for Tuesday is SB 65. So during his announcement on Tuesday, Governor Bashir called this bill cruel, which was pretty harsh. The wording on this bill is nearly impossible to make out, but according to Governor Bashir in the media, the bill prevents the Cabinet for Health and Family Services from expanding SNAP eligibility. That's food stamps. According to the Herald-Leader, this bill is passed because the Bashir administration removed some Bevan-era regulations, which tried to prevent what they called deadbeat dads from receiving SNAP benefits. I'm not a big fan of the term deadbeat dad. No, it's a bad term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- the this is one of those bills that's like, this regulation is repealed and it gives you the name of it. And it, I didn't really, I don't, so I couldn't tell you exactly the mechanism by which this bill operates. But yeah, according to the media, that's how it works. And basically um, taking food out of the mouths of children during a pandemic, which is probably not the best idea. Uh, and in fact, is cruel, like Governor Bashir said. So those were the bills that were vetoed on Tuesday. Jasmine, anything you got, you got a problem with there? Um. No, I mean, these are some of like the worst bills of the session, maybe like it. I mean, they're just like screaming. We don't care about people. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, 
it's unfortunate that like they can override these very easily. Yeah, they can. Uh, although some of these some of these votes were pretty close. Uh, so these were um, some of them weren't, um, but time is also a factor. So yeah. so we'll get into that. But then uh, on Wednesday, which is just today, the governor vetoed education bills. So the first one he he vetoed was HB two fifty eight. This is Ed Massey's education bill that he's worked on since before the session. He got JCTA to support it. If you've been listening to the show, you you know about this bill. This bill does reduce pensions. It's a lot like HB 312 uh, in that it represented a bit of bullying by the majority, kind of saying, hey, unions, if you don't want us to do this other really, really bad thing, you better accept this somewhat bad thing that we have put in place. So, you know, Ed Massey did a lot of work to kind of try to get a lot of advocates and education on the side. He was somewhat successful in getting JCTA to support and he got KEA to kind of sit on the sidelines. But there was a lot of opposition to the bill, especially by the Democratic representatives and senators who who serve in the legislature. Um, but Governor Bashir did decide to veto HB 258. And then the last one we're going to talk about is HB 563. That is the Charters Bill. So that is vetoed. He called out this bill. He said it would have spent more on private schools than public schools requested for textbooks books and transportation, again, which wasn't fully funded. So giving more money to private schools than public schools had asked for for that specific subject. Um, And then he also pointed out that this bill diverts money from rural counties to urban ones. I talked a little bit uh, to Lutitia last week about this, Jasmine, but this bill is funny to me because urban people do not want these vouchers. Rural people probably don't want to pay for them, but this bill makes it so that rural people have to pay for something for urban people that they don't even want. Very stupid idea altogether. Ada Bashir also said that this bill is unconstitutional, and he cited Rose versus the Council for Public Education, which is the court case that said all Kentucky students are required to have similar access to publication. That That is a court case that led to Kira, uh, the major Kentucky education reform in the 90s. Um, and then he finished his comments on this topic by saying that he wanted to work with independent schools to find a better solution to the problem this bill was originally supposed to solve. So again, like this bill was originally like a, 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 the product of a lot of work between independent school districts and county school districts to try to deal with an enrollment issue that's been ongoing for a long time. And then Republicans kind of tacked this crazy vouchers issue to it uh, and made it very unpalatable to a lot of people across the state. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked a lot about that on our show a couple weeks ago about how they're kind of marrying these things and kind of making it so that it's a tough pill to swallow for Democrats. But Democrats have really held the line and saying, you know, we do not want charters. We want to work with independent school districts to make a clean bill about that specific issue. Um, but we don't want this stupid charters thing. Uh, and Andy Bashir has vetoed it. This bill did not pass the legislature with enough votes to override a veto. So we will see what happens with this one especially. But Yeah, I guess I was going to ask you, like, what do you think the future of this bill is? Do you think that, you know, there's like some coalition building going on where they're trying to bring people on board to try to override the veto? Or like, do you think it's dead? Um, for this one specifically, I think that they're going to have a really hard time passing it. I, I think that they clearly. Yeah. So so it is kind of interesting, though, because it passed 48 to 47, which means a lot of people didn't vote. And I think a, probably mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't vote because they didn't want to go on the record as supporting it because they think it would be bad in their district. And the last person who ended up voting for it was Adam Koenig, who is a, a re- Republican in northern Kentucky in a pretty, uh, a pretty moderate district. And that's going to be a tough vote for him. So I, I think... 
probably the Republicans will be able to pull enough people off of the sidelines to vote on this if they have to. And I think they probably will. So it, it really is up to those kind of more uh, centrist Republicans. Centrist Republican in Kentucky is incredibly conservative in most other places. That's something to say. But like the people who are kind of on the further left edge of the Republican caucus, they're going to be really key to whether or not they can override this veto and whether the Republican leadership can get them off the sidelines. So I, I'm actually, I don't have any predictions about this one. Uh, it's also going to be a tough debate to have, and they don't have a, a lot of time to pass mm-hmm. it. So uh, that's something that is that is definitely up in the air. Yeah, I, I don't think that the vetoes are done, Jasmine. I think that there's probably a lot more to go. So, uh, yeah, uh, once we actually get into the last two days of the legislative session here in a couple weeks, uh, they're going to have a lot to do. But they did manage to pass like 100 bills in two days, uh, the last two days of the legislative session. So it's not like they can't do it, but we will uh, we will see what they do. So tell us about the things that are not yet done in the legislative session, Jasmine. Okay, so like you said, they they've only got two days left next week. Um, but a lot to potentially do. So the first thing is no-knock warrants. So Senate Bill 4, that's President Stiver's no-knock bill, it passed the Senate and passed out of a committee in the House with the hope that language from Representative Scott's bill, Brianna's Law, House Bill 21, could be added as amendments. Um, And there have been Democratic amendments filed But there are also several Republican amendments that basically dilute the bill to almost nothing. Right. Um, You know, so we have some good amendments like officers have to be identifiable as law enforcement, um, a paramedic present on site if a no knock is going to be executed, limiting the offenses for which, you know, you can execute a no knock warrant and then bad amendments such as expanding the offenses for which you can do a no knock warrant. Um, extending the time period mm-hmm. for you to do one and then lowering the standard from clear and convincing to a preponderance standard. And a preponderance standard is just like more likely than not. Um, clear and convincing is definitely a higher standard that the police would have to meet. So they still have, they have to deal with these amendments and, so time's running out for no-knock warrants, and and we'll see what happens there. Mm-hmm. Next one is civilian review boards. The House version of this bill, House Bill 309, passed the House but has yet to be voted on by the Senate. And then early voting. So House Bill 574, this is the election bill that includes three days of early voting, updates to the absentee procedures. We talked about this on the show. It passed the Senate 33 to 3 with a change. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was amended to also require counties to petition the state board of elections before consolidating precincts. So kind of a small change that was added to it, but now it has to go back to the house for concurrence. But this is a bill that, I mean, it, secretary of state, Michael Adams, who's a Republican, um, has advocated for it and it has bipartisan support. So hopefully we can get that done. Okay. So the abortion Constitutional amendment is not finished. So House Bill 91 has not been voted on by the full Senate. This is one that like it didn't really matter if they got it done before the veto period because it's a constitutional amendment that would have to go on the ballot. The Senate still needs to vote on that if they want to have that on the ballot this year. Mm -hmm. 
COVID corporate liability protection. So um, we've mentioned this bill on the show. It's Senate Bill 5. It passed the House, um, but it did have some Republican opposition. It it also passed House committee, but hasn't been voted on by the full House. And I don't really know what the chances are that they will mess with this one since it would be able to be vetoed Mm -hmm. um, and they wouldn't have a chance to override it. Senator Wheeler said of this bill, it's a solution looking for a problem. And I think that about a lot of yeah. Republican bills. So yeah. it's Phil- interesting to hear him say that. Philip Wheeler's an interesting guy because he does, he's, I don't know, uh, he at least says what he thinks. Uh, and sometimes he thinks things that I think are really disgusting. But uh, sometimes yeah. he thinks things that are, are smart like this. So Another bill um, that, you know, I think is, is stalled at this point is banning the death penalty for serious mental illnesses. So this is House Bill 148, and it passed the House, um, but 16 people voted against it, which I think is really uh, disappointing. And you know, everything I've heard about this bill is that the Senate just wanted to let this one go away. So right. I don't yeah. think that we're going to get that done. Mm-hmm. There's also a bill about Zoom court that I'm not I don't think that that one is going anywhere at this point. So House Bill 551 is a bill about virtual court appearances that would allow incarcerated people to appear like via Zoom, even post pandemic um, for certain types of hearings and things like that. And I I mentioned this one just because it's it's the world that I work in and most defense attorneys oppose this um, because there are definitely some Sixth Amendment issues, you know, having... Um, clients appear via Zoom forever. Yeah. The Sixth Amendment is the one that allows you to face your accuser. Is that right? Yeah. And it's also, you know, the right to counsel. And Mm. there are definitely issues with like not getting to consult with your client in person during a hearing, I think, as well. So um, hopefully this one um, is dead also. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's also, so this is kind of like come back into the news in the last week. House bill 310 is like a mental inquest bill. So that's not what it was originally. Um, but there was an amendment added to the bill that would change our civil commitment procedures for like involuntary hospitalization. Right. Um, and there's a case in Louisville, um, that has been in the media for a couple years that have, have really brought this issue to light. So this is when um, someone's charged with a criminal offense, but they are found incompetent and they're found not likely to regain competence um, in the foreseeable future. So then there's a procedure for taking out a mental inquest warrant for them to be involuntarily hospitalized. And there are, certain criteria that have to be met to keep a person hospitalized. And um, there's a man in Louisville who's been released from the hospital multiple times and then picks up new criminal charges and is found incompetent and the hospital releases him. And, And I think like a lot of people have been like calling this a loophole and putting this on judges for releasing people. But I mean, there are four criteria that have to be met to keep a person hospitalized. And it's on, you know, the doctors make these decisions about whether a person meets this criteria. Um, So I think this is a really tricky issue. Basically what this bill would do 
would it would establish different criteria, and then there would be like a hearing where, after they're found incompetent, they would get an evidentiary hearing where if the judge finds by a preponderance of the evidence that more likely than not standard that the person is guilty of the crime, even though they're incompetent, it's not a conviction. It's just a a finding that they're more likely than not guilty. Then they can trigger a commitment hearing where they can be involuntarily hospitalized for much longer and they would stay hospitalized and have these review hearings I think this is a really tricky issue because civil commitment still is like a liberty issue and someone can be, even though they haven't been convicted of a crime, they can be more or less detained for a long time. Um, But because of this case in Louisville, I think that they're trying to get this done this year. Yeah, this was something that has been talked about quite a bit in the past couple of years. And I know that Morgan McGarvey and Julie Racky Adams have been working on this for a couple of years when it was in the media uh, originally. And then I think that this came back into the news because even though Senator Adams and Senator McGarvey filed a bill again this year. Uh, it wasn't brought up, but then this person who was in the media was released again. Um, I think his crime this time... He was w- found incompetent again. That's what... You're right. Okay, that's what it is. But there, this person, something happened with their case uh, to put them back into uh, the the news and uh, that that had ca- kind of had a cascading effect of putting it back in the media mm-hmm. and realizing that they hadn't really done anything about this bill. Um, it was the subject of a full episode of the Uncovered podcast, which I have to talk about every time uh, that we yeah. talk about. And on that show, they did say, is anyone actually opposed to this? So, you know, for a more nuanced reading, you should come here to my old Kentucky podcast and listen to Jasmine talk about it. Uh, because, yeah, it is a liberties issue. Um, and, and there are two sides to every story. And yes, while this person likely um, is not safe to have have on the streets there's also the ability for this bill to potentially lock people up and commit them to uh involuntary life sentences life sentences without without being found guilty yeah yeah and it is it's it's just a tricky issue and uh you know i just hope that the legislature if they pass something are willing to like check, check to see what it actually does to people's lives and revisit it if they need to so yeah and you know and if if this does end up passing Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about the different things that it does. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that that bill is scheduled to be heard by the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. So I think that that is something that will pass this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so next we have the really bad anti-protest bill. That is Senate Bill 211, um, which enhances penalties and fines and creates protest-related crimes. Um, That passed the Senate, but hasn't made it out of committee in the House. Um, So my guess is this won't pass. Do you agree with that, Robert? I think it's the same boat that you were talking about with the the death penalty bill. The the Senate passed this one, and I think that that, the House wants this one to die. I think that this has been been the focus of enough bad media that they don't want it to to go any further. Yeah, that was my thought as well. Um, Also... ban on conversion therapy. Um, so we, we've had this bill introduced um, for several years now, and it does have bipartisan support, but there's a House version and a Senate bill version um, that would ban conversion therapy, and neither even got a committee hearing. So that's an issue that we're going to have to keep pushing for 
in 2022. Yeah, we're, we're really, uh, we, we had the opportunity to talk to one of the organizers around this effort this year to kind of drop the ball and getting them on the show. Uh, but we want to do that uh, before the next legislative session, unless it passes this year, in which case we'll celebrate. Uh, and yeah, this is a big issue. Lisa Wilner has been on our show talking about it before. Uh, but, but these issues are, especially when they are not like natural for the majority party to take up, take a little while to, to, to focus on and get past, which is really, really bad for people who are, you know, LGBT people in the state who are victims of this sort type of torture. Uh, so I, I, it's too bad that that's the case, but I do have high hopes that this will eventually get through the Kentucky mm-hmm. legislature, especially with the amount of effort that people are putting into it. So yeah, um, something, something to be watching in future sessions for sure. Yep. Um, and then we also have the West End TIF bill. So this did not get done. Um, we talked about this one on the pod a few weeks ago, and it hasn't even passed the full Senate yet. Um, so I'm not sure if anything will be able to happen there in the time that they have left. And then finally, um, appropriating the Recovery Act funds. I don't know if if they'll be able to have the discussions they need to have to be able to get this done in two days. So there could be a special session. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that that's one of the options. Uh, the They also have the option of, uh, I think the governor has like three or four things he's allowed to spend it on. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, just take all whatever several hundred million dollars and just spend it all on broadband. Like, I don't like, yeah, we need it. So might as well. Uh, <laughs> and, and like sewer and water stuff too. There's a lot of needs for that around the state. So I think, you know, it kind of depends on what the governor wants to do. He still is the only person that's allowed to, to call the legislature back in session. And uh, I think if they don't want to work with him, um, or if he doesn't feel like they're doing a good enough job working with him, he has some things he can spend it on. So that's an option that he has available to him. But I do hope that, you know, they are able to get on the same page and at least like appropriate this uh, to something, hopefully not like the arc in Northern Kentucky or something like that. That would be what I would be worried about is spinning it on stuff. That's really stupid and not necessary. Um, yeah. So, so uh, there's a lot of things that the legislature didn't get to despite, you know, passing over a hundred bills. So those are some of the things to look out for um, next week. And also some of the things that we think are probably dead at this point. Yeah. You didn't mention the transportation budget, which is a huge issue and did not pass. So uh, that is something that they also still are hanging out there. Uh, That one budget bills. Sorry, sorry I missed that one. No, budget bills are tough because it's like there, it's like nine different bills and it's like, there's not like one transportation budget, but yes, that's those still need to pass. Uh, it's, It's also like harder to find things that didn't pass than things that did pass. Like you have to like go looking for it, you know? Yep. All right. Well, before we get to our interview with Chuck and Big John, uh, we want to do a COVID update. So Kentucky saw its 10th straight week of declining COVID-19 cases in the week ending Monday. So that's good. Uh, You know, we're now in the fifth week of what I think is probably like a more gradual decline after seeing cases fall like really significantly for the five weeks prior. Um, On the map, there's only eight counties left in red, including Lyon County, where an outbreak at the state prison means that their cases per 100,000 population is still about 150, which is really bad. Simpson County is also experiencing a significant outbreak in their jail, resulting in 75 cases per 100,000. So those two counties, because, uh, you know, they're not able to adequately take care of people in in prison and jail, um, are seeing significantly red uh, uh, areas inside of their counties. And but other than those two very hot spots, the rest of the state is mostly yellow. 
there's only about 50 counties that are even left as orange, meaning that there's more than like 50 gr- yellow or green counties. So that's, you know, a lot different than what we were talking about in the summer, uh, which is good. Lexington saw fewer than 250 cases last week for the first time since July of 2020. And Le- Louisville saw fewer than 800 cases again for the first time since mid-July last year. Kentucky's down to 434 people in the hospital for COVID, which is more than 100 fewer than the last time we updated this number, which was two weeks ago. That's about a 10% decrease uh, per week for those two weeks. So that's, you know, again, a pretty significant drop in in our COVID uh, hospitalization rate. So that's, that's very good news as well. Um, among states, Kentucky now ranks 27th in new infections, uh, and we are still declining. There are a lot of states that their case rate has plateaued or even started to tick back up in terms of infections, but Kentucky, again, is in its 10th week of decline. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Monday had very, very low cases, but Tuesday and Wednesday are, are right at uh, where we were last week and maybe a bit above. So I don't know. We, we may experience that 11th week of decline, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Kentucky has now given the first shot of vaccine to 1.1 million people, including 185,000 who received a vaccine for the first time last week. So that's a new record, and it breaks the 165,000 record set by the the week prior. So we're like accelerating and increasing the number of people who are getting vaccinated every week. Kentucky's vaccine supply is actually really hard to understand. So Johnson and Johnson rolled out last month that that boosted our supply for one week, but they didn't they didn't sustain that which we expected and then uh you know there was a major weather disruption which saw a decline decline in our our vaccine supply and and now this week we're having what they what they are calling a lump sum of the federal prescription program um that's included our supply numbers which means that you know it's showing up as like several it's like two hundred eighty thousand. uh so i actually have no idea if we're seeing a gradual increase in our supply there's just all these weird events that are happening that makes those numbers just kind of jump all over the place. Um, So it's really hard to say what our vaccine supply is doing, uh, but hopefully over time it will continue to increase. But it it is the case, though, even though I can't say whether it's going up steadily, for the past month, Kentucky has received at least 98,000 new vaccines per week. So that's that's good. Uh, That's that's about what we're able to, to vaccinate anyway. According to the New York Times, Kentucky now ranks 14th in number of first uh, people who have received uh, at least one shot of the vaccine. We were further back than that for several weeks, and there is also beginning to be a bit of separation in the states. It was the case for a long time that you know 20 or 30 states were at about the same rate of vaccination. But some states have started to break out a little further, uh, and some states have, have gone uh, a little further back. So Kentucky uh, has 27% of the population that has gotten that first shot, and there's only eight other states that are at that percentage level, 27%. Uh, Some are more than that, but with 27, there's eight states that are at 27. Lots of states are stuck back at the 22 or to 23%, which is a pretty significant difference from 27. That's like five percentage points off. Um, And several Southern states like Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee have only vaccinated about 20% of their population or, or less. So there's a lot of states that are not that far away from Kentucky and where Kentuckians may go to visit for vacation, which are doing a much worse than Kentucky. So vaccine eligibility is again also beginning to significantly open up. 
I've seen several sites across the state that are beginning to offer shots to anybody over the age of 18. Luvax has begun making appointments to everybody in 1C. They were like one of the last places to do that. Uh, they have a longer time period that they say they'll be open to stage two and three, but I have a feeling that's going to open much sooner for people in Louisville who want to get the vaccine. Jasmine, uh, it feels to me like the supply of vaccines has been kind of the 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 hard part for a long time. There's been a lot more people who wanted the vaccine than, than we had supply for it. I kind of feel like we're heading into a, a time when demand may be tougher, where uh, there, we're going to see a lot of people who are like, I don't have any problem getting the vaccine, but I'm not going to like get on the internet at four in the morning like a lot of people have been doing to get the vaccine. Are, are you kind of feeling that mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, I wonder I wonder how, how long that's going to take and what it's going to take to get those people vaccinated. Hopefully, we've got a plan for that. Yeah, I feel like now so many sites are like open to just about anyone except like kids. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's everybody I know wants the vaccine and they're checking sites. So I don't know, you know, how many people fall into that category, but I think you're probably right. Yeah. I kind of feel like the people are worried about the people who are like vaccine hesitant, who are just like, I don't, I don't want the vaccine. Uh, and, And people are talking about those people quite a bit and like, you know, have opinions about them. But I wonder about a wide swath of people who are like, I don't know. I, I would get the vaccine. Sure. But uh, aren't like you and me and are like checking the internet every day to see when you're eligible and <laughs> yeah. seeing when they can go get it. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a lot of people and our plan mm-hmm. for actually getting those people in and getting them seen and getting them shots, it, it, that's got to be a part of it. So I think we're actually going to be entering that stage pretty shortly. Kentucky also began its audit this week to ensure it understands how many people have died from COVID. Uh, in addition, the state has made available to the media the actual dates of death for all the people who announces on a specific date. Like that's been kind of a, a little bit of a controversy where they announced like 50 deaths, but not that many of them actually happened in March. Some of them happened as far back as like December. Um, but that's just when they were able to confirm that the death was due to COVID. Uh, however, the new deaths announced by the governor have been pretty flat for a while. Uh, if we actually get the data for the dates of death, we'll be able to dig in on how many, how the death rate has changed over time. But for now, we feel like it's pretty flat. Jasmine, the pandemic is another week closer to being over, but it is not over yet. So get the shot, wear a mask, and stay socially distant and or outside. So that's my advice. Good advice, Robert. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm starting to do a few more things. Uh, I'm We're both like halfway vaccinated. We went to mm-hmm. a friend's birthday party that was outside this week, so it was nice to see you. I guess it was the first time you got to meet Louisa, so that was kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. Other than like at your door one time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and listening to her scream on the podcast. So that was a... <laughs> yeah, she she's upset currently, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Kelsey's probably cooking dinner. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else to say about, about COVID, Jasmine? No, I think you covered it all. All right, very good. All right, well, let's get to our interview with Chuck and Big John. Chuck Cora and Big John Eisner are the hosts of Apodlatcha. Both are natives of Parkersburg, West Virginia, which is about a two-hour drive outside of Kentucky. Appalachia is a show providing an authentic voice from Appalachia about the region's identity. We invited them to our show to talk about Kentucky's role in Appalachia, as well as Appalachia's role in Kentucky. So Chuck and Big John, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're we're big fans, so we're very excited to do this. Um, you're, I think, our first guests from outside of Kentucky. 
So congratulations for that. That's a big win on your part. So uh, honored. Yeah, absolutely. Honored, yeah. All right, so you guys used to do this segment on your show where, uh, John, you would like have to guess the relevance of a number. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Datalacha. Datalacha, yeah. I was trying to think, I was like actually going back to old shows to like try to think of what the, the segment was called, but that is what it was. Yes, Datalacha. I'm glad you remember yeah. that. So we're not going to actually make, yeah, we're not going to make you guess numbers, but we do have a couple numbers, and I'm at, I want to, I want your opinion on them. So uh, the two numbers are 26% and 5%. So 26% is the percentage of Kentuckians that live in Appalachia. So that's to say that like I'm a Kentuckian that doesn't live in Appalachia, but my mother-in-law is a, a Kentuckian that does live in Appalachia and 26% are like her and 74% are like me. And the other number that is 5% is that's the number of Appalachians that live in Kentucky. So, uh, my, you guys are Appalachians that don't live in Kentucky, like 95% of Appalachians, and 5% are, again, like my mother-in-law, that live in Appalachia <laughs> and Kentucky. So of those two numbers, are either of them surprising to you, um, or, or do any of those uh, you know, defy ac- your expectations about Kentucky or Appalachia? Yeah, I, it's kind of surprising just because I think we have a lot more listeners from Kentucky. I mean, mostly from West Virginia, but... I'd say second would be Kentucky. So I would say that 5% is, is pretty surprising. But I guess when you geographically, when you look at it, probably shouldn't be that surprising. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I think, look, I'm I'm one of those people. I work with the ARC all the time, like the Appalachian Regional Co- Commission, and I, I disagree with all their boundaries most of the time. So on the show, you'll hear like me say some random town or some random city in Kentucky and then Chuck has to correct me that it's not it's not quote unquote like Appalachia but I I just throw them in anyway so to me Kentucky's 100% Appalachia <laughs> if if we're going by my rules all right, I appreciate that. Uh, we'll get into migration in a, in a while, in a bit, but yeah, I do think that's interesting. So this is actually ARC data mixed with since, or yeah, that's that's where that came from. Uh, and you know, I think like forty percent or something are from Pennsylvania, and, or, and that's like mostly because all of Pittsburgh, I think, think counts as Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and Kentucky is so interesting too because uh, you know there are a bunch of counties in which you know I would consider Appalachia. And a lot of that I wouldn't that are technically considered Appalachia. Um, you know, I I tend to think the boundaries are kind of made up anyway. Uh, so, but there yeah, are people literally made up. Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> there are people who get really mad though. Uh, we, my college roommate is from Barron County, which is South Central Kentucky, and he he was like, "This is this is not Appalachia." <laughs> so uh, there's no mountains yeah, anywhere yeah. close to here. Yeah. So. There are a lot of people that if you say like Louisville or even Lexington yeah. and, and even hint it, maybe it's part of Appalachia or even Appalachian adjacent, somebody from Appalachian Kentucky will, will get on your ass real, mm-hmm. quick. real quick. But I, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of parts of Appalachia that people don't realize are are in it. I mean, a huge part of, of northern Alabama and Mississippi are part of Appalachia, but it hardly ever gets talked about. Southern New York. Yeah, that's I think the most yeah. to Southern me, New York. The, yep, the most surprising. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Southern New York, but still counts as upstate. Whatever, I don't know. It's New York. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what, I, what are boundaries? You know, the five percent number was when I when I was looking at these numbers. The thing that stuck out to me the most, and, and you mentioned, you know, you have a lot of listeners from Kentucky, and I I do wonder if Kentucky, in your imagination, has like an outsized role 
in the identity of Appalachia or, or maybe just like central Appalachia, like that whole region. Um, you know, and I, I think of like a lot of the tropes that people come up with when they talk about Appalachia. And those are actually tropes that people use when they talk about Kentucky fully, like generally. Um, and I don't know if there's an overlap, though. Uh, but what do you think? Does Kentucky play an outsized role in the identity of Appalachia? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, w- w- without a doubt, the two the two biggest players in Appalachia, at least in identity purposes, uh, are one, West Virginia, and that's just because West Virginia's the entire state is in Appalachia. It's the only state that's 100% in Appalachia, according to the ARC. Number two is Kentucky, which, you you know, when you rattle off those numbers, you're like, okay, it, it's a player, but it's, you know, it's not really batting forth. But when everybody's thinking about it, it is. I mean, it's, it's the guy at the table uh, that everybody's listening to, and, and that seems to be this... Uh, this weird thing that's happened over time where Kentucky has uh, done, a, I, I would say they've done a pretty good job of being able to at least control the narrative in Appalachia because they've, they've taken up more space than they, they really are part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I think because I think what's typically associated with Appalachia culturally aligns a lot with Kentucky like it does with West Virginia. You think a rural, very rural more impoverished coal mining areas that's generally what it's stereotyped or not is is how Appalachia is perceived culturally so i think that with with respect to that kentucky does have an outsized um role in that and west virginia as well i'd also argue uh, uh pennsylvania to some extent except for pittsburgh but yeah i mean it's a, it, you decide the five percent figure which is really interesting when you think about a 95 percent of appalachians outside of kentucky but it probably controls 50 percent of the narrative mm-hmm. yeah I, I i do think a lot of the times that the narrative that we control is not necessarily one that we want to own all the time uh That's and true. like the narrative that we tell about we talk about appalachia is oftentimes not realistic and actually is a, a negative to a lot of the people that live there um so maybe we can start owning a better one i don't know yeah. i mean that that's our whole our, our whole idea <laughs> with the podcast yeah. right i would just add that i mean when you think of appalachia where john and i are from is probably not what people think of it we're from parkersburg it is quote-unquote chemical valley it's not, it's probably more culturally similar maybe to like a Midwestern town or like a, a central Ohio town than it is a coal mining area, but it's got its own unique flavor to it in and of itself. So I think like, you know, part of what we try to do on the show is, is, is show that there is a lot more to Appalachia than just what people generally perceive it to be. Yeah, it is kind of interesting how much of it Appalachia discussion, at least in Kentucky, is mostly just around coal mining and uh, like the river. Uh, is an entire another a different part of Appalachia in Kentucky. Like my old family is from Ashland, which does not have any coal mining, uh, but <laughs> still counts as Appalachia. And I would say probably yeah. is more like I probably more culturally similar to like a Parkersburg, uh, you know, Huntington, like that kind of mm-hmm. area because it's right. it's on the river. That's that's what the industry is, and it's refining and you know like chemicals and that kind of stuff. So even in even inside of Kentucky, there's a divide about what Appalachia means and is. Mm-hmm. There is in West Virginia too. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the I whole mean, it's, state. <laughs> it, it's yeah, and it's the whole state. I mean, it literally straight down the line of West Virginia. We like to call it the uh, sauce chili line. Uh, you know, from <laughs> oh, from yeah. where from where uh, half the state calls it uh, hot dog sauce, hot dog the other half sauce. calls it, oh, calls buddy, it hot dog it's, chili. It's uh, it more than half. It, it, you want to talk about the possibility of a second uh, civil war? I can tell you, it is brewing in West Virginia based off just that line itself. Uh, but yeah, there there definitely is a a massive 
kind of identity crisis, I guess you'd say, a lot of the times in Appalachia where it's like we always get put as these very – which a lot of the times like we are really rural people, but we're not all coal miners and we're mm-hmm. – you know, we're not all these – these stereotypes and in fact most of us are not coal miners and most of us don't live in a cold town Mm -hmm. because cold towns have been gone for years Mm -hmm. i mean so so we're hoping that people start to catch on yeah so one of the major issues in kentucky's appalachian counties is out migration so 38 of kentucky's 54 appalachian counties have lost population between 2010 and 2019 and eight of those have lost more than 10 percent of their population And, you know, between the two of you, John, you've stayed in Appalachia and Chuck has left. So can you all talk about how migration has impacted each of your lives? Look, uh, and John, I think you probably know the statistic better than I do. But I want to say that West Virginia was like they had a negative population increase over what was it a decade or or five years, 10 years, decade over 10 years. Yeah, and I think it was it was one of the only states, or maybe one of only two states, that that had a negative increase in population or decrease rather. And and so I guess what my experience was, it's kind of twofold. I grew up sort of believing that I needed to leave, and I, I've I guess I've litigated that on our show. And when we talk about identity, of just kind of feeling like rejecting the place you're from. But mm-hmm. the more practical reason is the economics of it. I mean. And John can speak to this as well. It is like jobs in West Virginia are really hard to come by, good paying ones. And for a lot of the work that I wanted to do with my profession, whatever you want to call it, I I could never find work in West Virginia. And, you know, I mean, I'd love to live in, in my home state, but it makes it really difficult. And, and part of that is the politics and the cultural, the culture that's being perceived and the culture that plays like the West Virginia legislature are making happen in the state. But part of it is just, pure raw economics. There's no industry coming in. There's no metropolitan area that can support a lot of different diverse jobs. And and then you can get in all the discussion about lack of rural broadband, that type of thing too. But really, I mean, it comes to me, it came down to being able to find a better job. And I just knew that, that there just wasn't going to be that possibility in West Virginia as much as I hate to admit it. And that was the whole reason why I moved away. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm on the other end. So I've I, uh, I've I've lived in West Virginia my entire life. Uh, part of the reason why we never left is uh, I always joke with Chuck all the time about this. But like, uh, obviously we ran a campaign once, so we might as well just uh, eventually run for governor. So why leave? Uh, but laying the seeds, laying the <laughs> seeds every day. Yeah, I lay it on every podcast just so people know. Uh, even though that's the first time I literally have ever said it. Uh, the the, the, the big thing is, so West Virginia and the part of Kentucky that you're talking about right now, uh, if you look at the reason why people are leaving, one is economics. And the reason it's economics twofold is that there's parts of the states and West Virginia as a whole who are rejecting the future. They're, they don't want to move on from industries mm-hmm. that they've trusted. And I get it. Like you, you've gone – you know, a hundred years living off this one industry and you're so afraid of the next step. It's kind of like uh, when you're in a bad high school relationship and you start to worry because you're like, wait a second, at some point I'm going to be 23 and fat. I'm not going to be able to get another you know, girlfriend. 
but that's not really the case, right? Like you always got a shot. There's plenty of fish in the sea. West Virginia and those parts of Kentucky don't understand that there's plenty of different options when it comes to different industries. So people like Chuck who want to work in a very professional atmosphere don't get that opportunity, especially in rural parts of these states because we haven't grown any. And <laughs> you say professional atmosphere as I'm sitting here in my sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, to be fair, you're, you, you're wearing a race Hell Praise Dolly shirt, so that's very professional. Much, yeah. That is pretty much like a suit to me. Uh, and so, <laughs> I'd so wear I mean, it to yeah. my wedding. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You should, well, you should have a second wedding with the same wife. You don't have to, you don't have to leave her, I promise. Okay, uh, that's good. I, well, that'd be a hard one to clear with her. We, <laughs> this is why we can't get anything done. This is why it takes hours <laughs> of editing for our show. Uh, it, it's hard. Every day I, I joke around. I'll, I'll text Chuck like two times a day and be like, well, I'm ready to leave West Virginia uh, because of something stupid that's happened here. It's, if it's either the legislature or or just something, you know, in, in general. Your toe, like, I, I stubbed my toe. I didn't get a hot dog that day. Tudor's line was packed. I was pissed. You know, uh, it's one of those things. But there, there's definitely this divide between that. And so, like for me, uh, Chuck and I both have law degrees. Obviously, he was able to go to, you know, Nashville and Virginia and kind of use his law degree. I, I don't have that option in West Virginia. There, there are no jobs when it comes to having a law degree and not being an attorney. It just doesn't happen because. Uh, we haven't moved. We haven't grown at all. So for a year, I went unemployed because uh, I was too qualified or highly qualified, whatever you want to call it. So I think that's why people are leaving. And I think that, you know, those, that's why uh, we've got to focus on creating new industries. Well, if you want to have a whole podcast about why the bar exam sucks, you can have Jasmine on your show for sure. So she will. I just took the bar. So yeah. I know. <laughs> oh, Man, I didn't. I didn't take it. So, but I'll still happily talk about how bad it. Is. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to add that you know, really, the benefit for, and I'll use Tennessee as an example because I lived there for five years. Lots of Tennessee is rural, uh, but you have centers like Knoxville and obviously Nashville and Memphis that are the economic drivers for the state, and they also help pull in jobs into more rural, urban, suburban and exurban parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So you have that benefit. So like, you know, you have Nashville who's bringing in a bunch of uh, healthcare jobs, but they're also taking those jobs and putting them in the outer counties so that like they can help get jobs to rural parts of the state. The same can't really be said for West Virginia because they don't really have anything, any city that can really bring people in. And when you look at just like trying to think practically about bringing in high-skilled jobs, it's really difficult. I mean, what are the incentives other than tax incentives, which they're trying to pass some ridiculous ones right now? And that's, I'm not trying to dunk on my home state, but it's just the practicality of not investing in infrastructure and relying on on centuries-old extraction industry to kind of keep the state going when, you know, you can go, honestly, you can go, go to Kentucky and find probably a job that I could work in Louisville or Lexington and that would work out for me or, yeah. or you know, vice versa, go down to Tennessee or whatever. Yeah, the, the Tennessee example is so interesting whenever you talk about Kentucky and Tennessee because we do have sort of a similar situation. We don't have a Memphis, which I wish we had a Memphis. That would be cool. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we uh, the, the relationship that Tennessee as a whole has with Nashville is just so much different than the relationship that, that Kentucky has with Louisville. Uh, and that's a big thing that we talk about on our podcast where we're kind of trying to bridge a divide between – 
Louisville and the rest of the state. That's where we both are. And we're very passionate about Kentucky. But um, there's a lot of people inside of Louisville that have a lot of disdain for the rest of Kentucky. And the, the opposite is absolutely true as yeah. well, which is not, I don't think, the case. I think a lot of people in Tennessee like love Nashville. Nashville is like the place to go. And uh, I mean, in probably the whole South at this point. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah. There's a lot of Nashvillians, though. The other, kind of that might be a little bit tougher. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that don't like the rest of the state. Yeah, because yeah. they see it as as backwards, which I I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But mm-hmm. uh, I will say though, as a fun tidbit, uh, uh, Nashville loves uh, you know UK fans when they come down for the SEC tournament. We call it the Blue Smoke Wave because <laughs> a lot of those fans love their Marlboro Reds and they bring them in and. And they, they go crazy on Broadway. So, you know, part of the reason why Nashville is thriving is because of UK. I've, uh, I've yeah, oh gosh. Oh, well, and that's a, the, the number of people <laughs> from Lexington that moved to Nashville is just astronomical. Like, <laughs> I can yeah, probably name both 20 of my people. best friends from yeah. college live there. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so one thing you mentioned was that you could come to a Louisville or a Lexington or a big city in Tennessee to work. And, that's kind of how migration has worked. You know, it doesn't always result in people moving to California or New York. It's people moving to, in Kentucky at least, to Louisville, Lexington, or Northern Kentucky. And and this has been going on for a really long time. So the people that did that now have children. And so the state has had a lot of people who have a connection to Appalachia, even if they no longer live there or maybe have never lived there. Um, so do you think that the people who move away are still Appalachian? And what about the people whose grandparents live there but who have never lived in the region? And finally, do you think there's too much gatekeeping around the Appalachian identity? This is my favorite. I love this question. Uh, first off, no, they're not App. No, I'm just kidding. They're, they're, still, <laughs> they're, still, they're still Appalachian. It's like, there is. There's a ton of gatekeeping when it comes to the, the Appalachian identity. There's only one person that we will keep out, and his name is J.D. Vance. Uh, so uh, that, that, that John is the only damn person, it, Vance. <laughs> that is the person uh, when we are at the gate, everybody else can come through, but we are never letting him in. Uh, but yeah, that, we're St. Peter. It. We're saying no. Yeah, yeah, we're saying no. Everybody else is on the list. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of gatekeeping, and I think – in all honesty, it's it has to do with two things. One, there's a lot of pride, I think, especially in younger people right now, about being Appalachian. Like this is a new wave uh, of young people that are coming in, and, and they want to fix things that have been going on in the region. But they're also like really proud to be Appalachian, and that's different than what we've seen because nobody's really, you know, from 1960 to 1990, no one really said, "Oh, I'm Appalachian," and then it started to catch on. The other thing is. We've been screwed over so many times by outsiders. Why wouldn't we be gatekeeping? I mean, at, yeah. at some po- at some point, we let people in, and you know, they stole our resources. They they mm-hmm. killed our people. You know, and and they treated us like you know we were less than humans. And so, I think that that history continues to push uh, gatekeeping forward. Uh, obviously, I think that it needs to be rolled back. Now we're I, I think we're beyond. Uh, letting that ever happen again. I think we're too, we're too smart of a region anymore to let that happen. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I think if, if you have a connection to Appalachia as a whole and you want to be part of the region, you, you're proud to be part of the region, you, you're Appalachian to me. That, it's, it's just that simple. Uh, we, <laughs> you've mentioned it, people are leaving in droves. They're out of here. We should be happy that somebody wants to be, wants to be Appalachian. That's great. We shouldn't reject anyone except J.D. Vance. That's it. 
Yeah, that's that's the rule, really. I think yeah. <laughs> if you want to like put that on a on a stone tablet and yeah. send it into the the sea or something, but <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think um, so. For me, I've always just viewed it as it. It's not for me to say who is and isn't Appalachian, and you know, I think the identity, much like the actual region itself, is fluid. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's always interesting when you have people that are really passionate about gatekeeping and and I don't think it's really good, but I think a lot of times it comes from a, a good place for most people because they are being protective because Appalachia has been exploited for its entire existence. So I think for the most part, the gatekeeping comes from a good place for most people, but I don't want to turn people off of a region that people are just now getting turned on to. And that's, I think, what we try to do. As John pointed out, we make one exception. That's for John Dammit Vance because he is, he's had his, his membership card revoked for a number of reasons. His, he had his chance. He had his chance. He did. He had his chance. He had a great opportunity, and he, and he squandered it. But, I, you know, it's not for me to say who is and isn't. And I know, like, we identify as Appalachians simply by where we're from and, and by – you know, the values that we hold, but I'm not going to tell somebody that they're not from Appalachia. That's not for me to say. Yeah, I think it's, it's an, I mean, this is a personal question for me, just because, you know, I, like, like I mentioned at the beginning, like I have a lot of family from Appalachia. My wife actually is from the same place that my dad is from, which is kind of a weird and ironic situation. But, you know, I grew up in, uh, you know, going to Eastern Kentucky a lot as a kid. And, you know, uh, I didn't know until I was like in high school that Camden Park was like actually in West Virginia. I thought it was in Kentucky because <laughs> we would we would go there when I was a kid. We would go. I mean, we, I spent a lot of time like Charleston, uh, Hurricane. My I had an aunt that lived in Beckley. Like, so, I mean, I spent these are like places that are important to me that I identify with that were a part of my childhood. But at the same time, I've never lived in this region and, and I've never like faced a lot of the same problems that people have. I, I live in Louisville. I was was able to get a job in my industry. I've never really faced the same sort of stuff that John you've been talking about. So if I I'm I'm probably not going to identify as an Appalachian, but that's a part of the, my identity. And mostly, I want to know like, am I allowed to buy that Appalachian shirt that you guys are selling? And would it be bad buy if it. I yeah, buy it? <laughs> All right. Look, look. First off, this is what I do. I immediately I immediately go buy that shirt. Okay, that. <laughs> That's first. One. That's, I buy two just in case. Look, yeah, just in case uh, JD Vance steals your other one. Yeah. Uh, look, this is something that a lot of people talk about too, because if you remember uh, back when I'm assuming, I don't know, uh, I'm assuming that most of us here are roughly the same time period, like age wise and things like. I don't know how old you are. I'm just guessing. I'm, I might be older. I might be younger. I don't know. Uh, but this, this is the. The thing, like we used to travel within Appalachia and kind of not even know we were traveling within Appalachia. Uh, you know, you talk about going to Camden Park and parts of West Virginia. Uh, like we went down to, we'd go down to Kentucky and North Carolina, and, and I wouldn't even realize we left the state because you know it never really turned into this big city. We never went into the big cities, but we saw everything else. So, I think if if you have this connection to the region and you're you're proud of that connection, then you should affiliate yourself with Appalachian. You don't have to call yourself Appalachian. That's fine. Uh, that's totally a personal choice. But you should you should take those memories and I guess hold them dear because I think that there are too many people who face like a gatekeeper once 
and they're like, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm not coming back like, or, or I don't want to be affiliated with this place. And, and that's not what we need as a region or mm-hmm. as a people, really. Well, yeah. I, 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 go ahead. Sorry, I would just add that I think like for John and I, one of the more important things for us is just is for people to understand what Appalachia is rather than like, do you identify as an Appalachian or not? It's, it's understanding the region and how diverse it is and how complex and misunderstood it is. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been very helpful for me, guys. Uh, and mostly I just <laughs> wanted to, to litigate this with the experts. And that's why we invited Sorting you on the show. Out yeah, my, my own emotions. Issues. Yeah, that's that's the whole purpose of this entire thing. My, my hourly rate is $200. Oh, just, man, you know. that's way more than my therapist. All right, well. I'm, I'm pro bono. I'm pro bono. <laughs> very good. Um, all right, so here's a, here's another question. So so every Appalachian state, you know, like you mentioned, besides West Virginia, it, it shares a state government with areas that are not Appalachia. Uh, and here in Kentucky, the role of Appalachia in our state government has really, really shifted significantly. And it used to be that Appalachia and urban legislators were a really strong pro-labor majority that really were able to get some good legislation done in the state. But now, urban legislators are, are the only part of that group left. Uh, Kentucky's down to 25 Democrats in the House, and almost all of them are from Louisville, Lexington, or northern Kentucky. Uh, and really, only two of the Democrats uh, that are in the House that are left are from Appalachia. And in 2014, that number was 15. There were 15 Appalachian Democrats in the Kentucky House. Urban Kentuckians have faced a lot of the same challenges and failures coming from our state government that Appalachian Kentuckians have faced. And yet, Appalachia has undergone a really significant political transformation over really just the past five or six years. And the urban parts of the state have not. So... For progressive people from Appalachia, which is kind of how you guys identify, I suppose, what would you say to a frustrated Kentuckian from Louisville or Lexington who is sad that that pro-labor majority is, is now gone? Well, I think uh, we, we've talked about this a, a good bit on the podcast. And uh, I know Chuck, uh, he probably has uh, – his dad was union, so I think that he could speak more to the union side of things. But just as at the political side of things – uh, the people that you're talking about, like the Lexington and the Louisville and those progressives, let, let's be honest with them for a second. So if you're listening, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. You have never felt forgotten when it comes to voting for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party has prioritized large areas like a Louisville, like a Lexington, like a – now, they may not like what's going on in these rural areas, which is fine, but the Democratic Party has – kind of walked away, in my opinion, from rural uh, Americans. They haven't gone, they don't like to get their hands dirty anymore, which has allowed Republicans to go, okay, we can do this and we can change the narrative and then Democrats aren't going to fight it. And that's exactly what's happened. If you look at like Nancy Pelosi, for instance, uh, she's literally said that Democrats have shifted their focus to the Western part of the United States because they don't feel like they can win here. When you, you just said it in 2015. They were winning. They they were they had the ability to win, and I think that that's where there's this major kind of divide right now between you have your Lexington and your Louisville, who are still somewhat strong progressive, mostly because one, uh, I argue, because the Democratic Party is very strong there. But two, look at the people who are coming into those areas as well. I mean, you have a lot of the the higher educated people. You have a lot of the people who are coming in. They have more of a progressive lifestyle. That's not really happening in in rural America right now. Uh, So that's just the political side of things. I I would push back against that a little bit to say, you know, I do think that there's large segments of, you know, uh, 
poor urban Kentuckians and especially like black and brown and people of color who really feel like they don't have a, a strong leadership voice inside of the Democratic Party. Uh, and look at a lot of the outreach that, that a lot of people inside of the Democratic Party are making towards like more rural Americans and are like, hey, we, we never stop voting for you guys. And yet you don't pay us anywhere near as close attention to us. So, uh, that That's fair. That I, I'll admit to that. I think I'm just saying in terms of, of why major cities still vote for the Democratic Party is because even though the Democratic Party has done an absolutely terrible job for legislating for these people, because I 100% agree with you on that, they've still pumped a ton of money into campaigns in those areas that have allowed candidates in places like Louisville and Lexington to have the upper hand and to be able to still reach these voters that you're talking about. Now, they've done, again, I will I will harp on this. They've done an absolutely terrible job of holding on to their promises, but they've still been able to reach those people when in vice versa, uh, you have an area like, uh, I'll just use West Virginia, for instance. I mean, Democratic, Democratic candidates don't knock on doors anymore here. They've just given up. And, and so uh, I, I think that's the difference I'm trying to make there is more of just the campaigning style. But I agree 100%. There are plenty of people who feel like they're not being legislated for. Yeah. So my response would be to those people uh, that it's okay to feel that way. In fact, you should feel that way and you should be pissed off about it, especially in rural areas, not representing your values. I think, you know, a lot of it is an interesting political conundrum. I mean, you look at broadly just and I'll just make this this comparison, West Virginia, Tennessee and Kentucky statewide used to be very big democratic strongholds i mean it wasn't until what you probably know this 2017 where republicans controlled three the the executive and then both houses in kentucky right uh, i think it was 2017 was the first yep. time in a long time they did mm-hmm. that and um and same for west virginia i don't know which date it was but i mean for a long time it was democratic dominance same with tennessee i mean and around the same time tennessee went uh, red and they went red hard now, there's a lot you can get into, gerrymandering and all that stuff, but my theory to the case is that Democrats have conceded class-based campaigning and class-based arguments, and the, a lot of that is is the union, um, the, the union backing. And now, like, unions obviously back Democrats, but Democrats have kind of given up on, on those working-class people in rural areas. And at the end of the day, everybody – has a stake in the game when it comes to the economy, when it comes to money. So where Democrats have conceded, I think Republicans have taken advantage of that. Now, for me, I it's hard because, I, and when I make this argument, it's easy for me to make because I've moved away. But I, I think that you have to compete with progressive people everywhere because that's how you start putting marks on the board and making gains. And I, I've harped on this a lot recently when people reference Georgia and how they had such a significant seismic shift. Uh, I mean, you know, it went for Biden and they elected two United States senators. So that's literally three statewide elections uh, went for Democrats in what, like a month. So, you know, but and people cite that. What I'd say is that was not something that happened overnight. That was decades of organizing and decades of people losing and losing bad, but starting to make gains and starting to build coalitions and bring people in. Now, that's not to say that a lot of people moving into the Atlanta metro area certainly did help uh, and progressive people. But that's the thing. And I think that what I kind of get annoyed with is people, especially from the National Democratic Party, but I just think like 
I don't know, like progressives and liberals in general who want to discount parts of the country and, and parts and places where, where, where they don't think Democrats can win. Um, because, you know, Democrats can win anywhere and, and progressive people, I should say, not just Democrats. I won't, I won't use that as a blanket term, but more progressive people can win if you start competing. And if you don't, you're just conceding and you're just accepting a loss. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this, like in it's in West Virginia, We've used this example before. There was a, a guy by the name of Stephen Smith who ran for governor. He was very progressive. He, he essentially built a pseudo-political party around his campaign, I guess you could say. It was called the West Virginia Can't Wait Movement. It was essentially it was a party platform. It was a progressive platform, but he ran technically as a Democrat. He lost in the primary, uh, but he built a large coalition and had hundreds of people running under that platform, and a, a good handful of them won. But what's more important than that is that it's building an infrastructure of organizing to be able to win more in the future as long as people keep at it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, West Virginia, even though at a statewide level and even at most um, uh, state legislative levels went red, you look and you see these these little blips of progress throughout the the state. You look in Wheeling, the, the first openly transgender elected official ever in the history of West Virginia was elected. You look at Martinsburg, Corey Roman. Uh, he was, I believe, the first black city council member in Martinsburg, West Virginia history. Both of them ran on that platform. Um, other people, in, like in our hometown, these small local races where they upset Republicans, it doesn't get the headlines, but those are the wins that matter. And so for people that are upset about that, my my suggestion is to, if you want to channel that energy into something positive, organize or run for office at the local level. Find out who your school board member is. Find out who your city council member is. And if they're not doing what you believe in, boot their ass out of office. It, it sounds cliche because so many people are saying this. You have so many podcasts that are saying this, but that objectively is what works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When well, your point about Georgia is well taken by me, at least in that, like one of the things I think it's true about that place is that not only did they do all the organizing, the environment suited them in that very moment. And, and I think the moment's kind of coming for Tennessee. Nashville's growing so much, and eventually it will it will get to be the point where uh, it will at least get closer uh, than it was. Uh, it is we'll now closer. Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, Kentucky's a little different, though, just because Louisville's not growing in the same kind of way, um, and we don't quite have the same sort of uh, magnetism uh, for the rest of the state um, that, that exists in a lot of those other places. But that isn't to say that we don't have our own particular strengths, and you just kind of have to know your own, your own state. Well, and, and, you know, the West Virginia Can't Wait movement was very, very interesting to watch. I, I do think that West Virginia is a little bit ahead of Kentucky in, in that, uh, probably out of necessity, because you don't have these urban legislators that you can fall back on as a base. But it is kind of interesting because I do think we're stuck into this dichotomy of either, you know, liberal or conservative in the same way that they are in Washington, D.C. Uh, but that, I guess, is another interesting question in that one of the things I hear a lot from people out in eastern and, and western Kentucky as well is that we need to run Democrats like we used to, um, which is to say very conservative, probably backwards on a lot of social issues be, and, and, you know, anti-choice and that kind of stuff, uh, because that's what used to win. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily have to run Democrats like that or like, you know, John Yarmouth, who's the, the congressperson from Louisville. Um, you can have a Democrat who's more modern and Appalachian and Democratic, and, and that person would probably win as long as they were compelling and ran a good race, or at least they'd get pretty close. Uh, so what does that person look like to you guys? What do you think that person looks like as the person who would be a good person to run for office that's modern, young, and Appalachian? 
Well, well, can I, uh, I want to reinforce your point a little bit and push and push back on the people's notion that we need to run like we used to run. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about a race in Tennessee in 2018 for Senate because Phil Bredesen ran exactly like he ran for governor and (laughs) and got his ass beat. And it's because he ran like, and this is not to like, I know a lot of people worked on that campaign and bust their ass. And so, and that's not to, to discredit any of them. I know they worked really hard, but he ran like he was running for governor in 2002. Mm-hmm. And and that just doesn't work for people anymore. The Democrat name, the brand is tarnished. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to figure out a different way to cut that cloth. Now, um, I think you need to run somebody who's exciting, but who also can connect with people both in the urban areas and in the rural areas. And I'm no expert on Kentucky politics, but you have to be able to do that to even have a fighting chance. I mean, if you can, like, look, John as a, is a perfect example of like a, a micro example of that. John did the hard work in the district that he ran in. He, and I, I know this is where I'm speaking for you right here, but, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, you, you knocked on the doors, you, you, you introduced yourself to people. They heard you were a Democrat and they're like, Oh God, no. But then you explain to them, no, no, I'm not going to, do all these things that I'm, I'm not going to vote for Obamacare because I'm not going to Congress, that kind of stuff. And which is real conversations, but, yeah. but it's like introducing it on the human level like that. Now it's a little bit more difficult doing statewide. But my point is, is that you had like, you have to put in the work for that. Now, wh- what does that person look like? I don't know. We had an interview with Charles Booker and he's a pretty damn impressive guy and he's extremely progressive. But when you talk to him and you, and you sit down and you talk to him, he gets it and he understands how to relate both to people where he's from in Louisville and to people that are in Hazard, Kentucky, who are suffering because the coal mines are, are closing. They don't have jobs and they don't have a future. And so, and I don't, I'm not saying necessarily Charles Booker is the answer. I think he's a great candidate and I think that he could start a real movement, but I just think that you need somebody, you can't look at the past to inform the present on something like this, in my opinion, and I'll stop rambling after this, but because so much has fundamentally changed about politics since then. Yeah. And so much about the perception of Democrats and Republicans has changed since then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when we're looking to the, you know, we don't want to run in the past, but we want to make sure we do it right in the future. And I do think that, like, there's a lot of candidates in Kentucky who are Democrats who did not run like the past and were not as successful statewide as well. But speaking of Charles Booker, um, who is definitely running for United States Senate, he's he's 100% thinking about it, <laughs> yeah. but he's running for Senate. One, yeah, he's doing it. That, yeah, that was your that was your beef this week. I think was right. Uh, you had well, but I'm not mad at him. I'm mad at other people who accept money before they before they start their Senate races. I don't like that. Yeah, I I, I get that. Um, but he he, you know, he's got that saying, you know, from the hood to the holler, and it's really caught on because you know it's a really awesome saying. It like has alliteration and everything, uh, which is really nice. Um, but I I do think poor people across Kentucky need to have a common solidarity. And I think that's really important. But one of the things that I do worry about, and I've said this a couple times, is that I think it might be a little reductive because like not all urban folks live in the hood and not all folks in Appalachia live in the holler. So what are some ways that Appalachians and urban Kentuckians or really, you know, Americans more generally can build solidarity between regions, Appalachia and otherwise, that is holistic and understands like the nuances both in, in, in all the regions? Look, no matter where you live, I mean, if you live in Louisville or you live in uh, Waverly, West Virginia, if you're poor, you're poor. Like, it, it doesn't matter if you consider yourself living in the holler or the hood or 
if you, you know, maybe you inherited a nice house, who cares? You're, if you're poor, you're poor. You know you're poor. Uh, trust me, I get it. I, I grew up poor. <laughs> uh, we knew we were poor every single day. Uh, and I, But I think really, I get where you're coming from when it comes to kind of that identity. Like, there are a lot of people who will fight that too, where, you know, yeah, they're, you know, maybe, maybe we look at their, where they're living and we say, oh, that's the hood or, oh, that's the holler. But they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's kind of like the Appalachian thing, right? Like not everybody wants to identify as Appalachian, but, you know, we think they're Appalachian. It's kind of like one of those things. And uh, I, I think the way that you bring these people to the table is trying to show them that poor in Louisville is the same poor in Hazard, Kentucky. It's the exact same. You're poor. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter where you live. You have to connect people like that. Cause I think there's this misconception right now where like people who are in Hazard think that people in Louisville are doing better because there are some people in Louisville doing better, but there are a lot of people that aren't. Uh, and I think that's where Charles, you know, a candidate like him could capitalize is bringing people together and saying, look, uh, you all are living the same lives it's just that you've been told to separate from each other. And I think that's his mission. I, I, we've only spoken to him one time, uh, but I, I think that's the way you could do it is just show people that they're way more similar than they probably think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, um, well, and with the hood of the holler, I do think it's a good, uh, I think it's a good slogan. I think the, the purpose tends to be like not leaving anybody behind. And I think that's really important because too often, much like segmenting people by Democrat versus Republican, a lot of times people are segmented by rural versus urban, like it's us against them. And I think that that is such a toxic way of, of looking at people. You know, I mean, you can, there, you know, there are rural areas for where we grew up, John, but then there's Mingo County, West Virginia, which is like very, very, like if a cold, truck is turned over you're not getting to school that day like rural and so which that actually happened my sister one time um so i I think it's i think what john said is right you need somebody who not only is willing to put in the effort to meet people where they are to meet to talk to people in quote-unquote hood and the quote-unquote holler but to also be able to relate to both of them and i think john's right the message is if you're struggling you, you it doesn't matter where you are. If you're struggling, you're struggling. It doesn't matter where you are. If you can't afford macaroni in San Francisco and you can't afford macaroni in Mingo County, that's the same deal. Like you're, you're poor. And so I think, I think that's really what it comes down to. And what I mentioned before with class, that's something that really is a powerful motivator for everybody, especially young people right now. I hate saying that too because it makes me sound old. When I say young people, so but so <laughs> I think I'm the oldest of everybody, so I'm I'm older. So that's that's well. Good. Look, I'm still a young entrepreneur, according to West Virginia. So I'll take. Yeah, it. he's under thirty. There you go. Under thirty. <laughs> but under 30. I, that's the issue that's motivating so many people because so many people are feeling left out in the economy and left and saddled with debt and uncertain for their future, and especially with the pandemics made it thirty million times worse. So that's the issue that you have to campaign on. You have to show people that what you're going to do, them putting you in the office is going to make tangible differences in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that that's exactly what he's going for. So if that works, that'd be great. Uh, so, but, but I do kind of think, you know, whenever 
I hear about our people outside of Louisville talk about Louisville. A lot of times they're like, oh, it's just grimy and urban and, and uh, you know, the hood or whatever. And, and, you know, like I said, you know, whenever I would talk to people about my, you know, my grandfather living in Eastern Kentucky, they're like, oh, does he wear shoes? Does he live in one room? So I, I, I do worry sometimes about things being reductive. But I think it, it, it's a slogan that works. Um, so I think you should keep using it. Uh, which he definitely will. Again, the shirt he looks will. nice. He, he yeah. has a nonprofit named it. He's, yeah. not, he's yeah. not going anywhere. <laughs> There's going to be a movie and a book, I think, now too. Yeah, that's probably. I don't think Netflix is going to pick it up, though. That's I don't know. Point. If he wins, who knows? True. That's a good point. All right. Well, before we let you go, how can people listen to App Podlacha and how can people connect with you all? Chuck's better at this. Am I? <laughs> oh. Well, you can listen to us on anywhere you can find a podcast, uh, Apple, Spotify. You can check out our YouTube channel. We're trying to grow that a little bit. It's been a, it's been a, a, a labor of love, so we'll say. Um, you can check out our website, appodlacha.com, A-P-P-O-D-L-A-C-H-I-A. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, appodlacha handle on all three of those. Did I miss anything, John? Uh, nope. Patreon.com slash Appodlatcha. Here you go. That's yeah. the only other one I know. Whatever uh, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, just like go to the subscribe button and just type yeah, in yeah. Appodlatcha. That will work. Jasmine, I think yeah, I like... this way. Yeah, Jasmine, I like... Robert always makes me do that part. Yeah, I was going to say, I like your I like your kicker better than Chuck's, but uh, he did pretty good. He did pretty well. Uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for... Sure. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is fun. All right. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Friday mornings. You can subscribe to it at FordKY.com slash email. And we have a Patreon page. You can support what Robert and I are doing for as little as a dollar a month at Patreon.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.